BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, welcome to the Blonde Files podcast. I'm your host, Arielle Laurie, and I'm here to talk all things wellness. From how to achieve optimal health and well-being to the best beauty tips and everything in between, no topic is off limits. I know there is so much information out there, so I'm here to help you navigate it all and live your best life. Thanks for listening. Let's get into it. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. I hope you are all doing well. I, for one, am super excited because I have a new microphone. Yay. The audio on my show has been driving me nuts. Like there are mouth sounds. It's tinny. I think my producer has just about had it with me because I keep sending him intros and going back and forth. And he's like, um, I think it sounds totally fine and I just can't let it go. So sorry, Brian, the audio on today's episode is from my old microphone. So this is the new one. Anyway, nobody cares. That's my big exciting news. It's the little things nowadays, right? So today's episode is a special one because I'm talking to Dr. Ben Talley, who did most of my cosmetic procedures. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to episode 45, where I break it all down. And I just have to say that I love that I can talk about this openly with you guys. I did a podcast the other day And they asked me what the most LA thing is about me. And I had a realization like all of it, everything. I am a walking, talking Los Angeles cliche. I don't know how it happened. It was gradual, but I drink green juice. I eat at Erewhon almost exclusively. (laughs) I'm married to a producer twice my age. We have a beach house. I meditate. I hike. I don't drink alcohol. And... I'm friends with my plastic surgeon. (laughs) You've got to laugh, but I like that I can do all these things. And you guys who listen to the show and who follow me on Instagram, accept that. And you know that that's just surface stuff. And like, I can still be an intelligent person at the same time. So I just had to put that out there. Anyway, Ben is a very dear friend to me and you guys have been asking for this one for a while. So it took the coronavirus to get him away from work long enough that he could come on the show. He also has a podcast now called The Reality Pill. So definitely check that out if you like this episode or you're interested in this stuff in general. 
and get ready to feel like a big underachiever. Enjoy. All right. So I'm here with the man, the myth, the legend, (laughs) the man behind my face, Dr. Ben Talley. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. It's a lovely face. So just so everybody knows from beforehand, I didn't have to do much at all. I actually was more like saying no to everything because she's so good to begin with. Ah, you're sweet. Thank you. Yes, I did have to kind of um, put a little pressure on for a couple of the procedures, but we can get into that maybe a little bit later on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as always, people can go to my page. I'm always posting like before and afters and I have no shame. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the best. That's the best. It's, it's the best for somebody like me too. When there's somebody so pretty and you're open about sharing. And for me, it's like, it's art, you know, and I get to be proud of my before and afters. And that's really what I look at every day when I go home. And if I'm allowed to share it, it's, it just makes my life so much better because that's what, I, that's all I want to do is I want to go make things look nice and then share it with the world. If I can't share it with the world, yeah, I'm proud of it. But I sit there and I kind of just have to look at it inside my room, like the <laughs> the Lord of the Rings character with his precious diamond, his precious know, ring. That sounds a little bit creepy. <laughs> yeah, that's how it is. <laughs> but it must be frustrating. I mean, I would imagine that would be kind of hard, especially when um, I'm sure you're working on people who are very much public and, you know, people are very open about sharing certain things and then they just hide everything else. And there is still such a stigma around plastic surgery and something that I love about your work and that I was really drawn to is that you appreciate everyone's individual beauty and you don't try to make things like perfectly symmetrical and you really appreciate like the flow of the face. And I feel like that's hard to come by, especially now when so many people just want the same look. Everybody is starting to look like clones. I I 100% like that's what I aim for because I'm a perfectionist, but I know I'm not going to get perfection. So I try to do things like practically and I hate looking at things and knowing that they've been done. It just, it hurts me. It hurts my feelings. If I see something and it's like, it looks like it's been done, I I can't deal with it. So I try to, you know, keep that talent improving because I'm I'm obviously not perfect. I'm trying to get better and better at it. But the, the biggest thing for me is I really like people in general. So when people come to me, I don't want to change them too much. You know, I, I see them and unless I see big problems, I like to just kind of work with what I have. If they come in looking fake, then it's like game on and I will tie them down and cut off their nose like right then and there. <laughs> okay. Well, before we get into everything, why don't you tell the listeners about your training and mm. also like the organizations that you're involved in outside of your practice, because it's very impressive. Oh, thanks. So uh, training wise, I, I grew up in LA, so I went to UCLA and for, for undergrad and I knew I wanted to be a doctor. So I got through it in about two years. And then for the other two years, I kind of just travel around the world, did like blood drives and lived in Spain. And I was a private investigator and worked on an ambulance and did ski patrol, kind of just anything I could do that was entertaining, racing cars, racing boats. And I uh, ended up going to med school at UC San Diego, which at the time was nearby, convenient, and on a beach. And it was actually the hardest medical school in the country. Not the hardest to get into, the hardest to actually go through because it was run by this like despot at the time. So it was a bit tough. And then uh, I enjoyed it though. I loved it. Then I got accepted over at uh, Columbia and Cornell University joint program for ENT head and neck surgery. And my plan was to become a cancer surgeon doing head and neck cancers 
kind of delicate stuff, but at the same time, uh, making a big difference, trying to save people's lives. That was my goal. Going through it in my third year out of five, I started crying every day because every time I told a cancer patient they have cancer, I would just lose it. I would start crying before they did. And I didn't want to live like that. You know, I, I came to the realization, this is part of my life is trying to just live as realistically as possible is that I wanted to be the life-saving doctor, but it was going to ruin my own life. And at some point I said, you know what, I can't do this. So I started to do the reconstruction of all those surgeries more and more and started to do more plastic surgery and oculoplastics. And I would rotate with everybody in the hospital. Like I was, I had so many cases that my the chief of our uh, department had meetings with me every quarter to tell me to stop doing so much surgery because it, it was disproportionate to everybody else. And so mm-hmm. it would make the program look bad if we ever got evaluated. So I became obsessed with it. And uh, I saw actually that the cosmetic stuff was more technically difficult to master than the reconstructive stuff and even like rhinoplasty and stuff like that. And I became addicted to it. And more and more, I said, okay, I want to do that. Then I went and did a fellowship in facial plastics to hone my skills, get a little bit better. And that was in cosmetics and cancer reconstruction in New York. Uh, It was part of like the Einstein Hospital. And then did another one in birthmarks, another fellowship in birthmarks in pediatric plastic surgery as part of uh, NYU. And now I had like my dream job where I could do kids. You know, I, I love kids. So like I could operate on kids and help them with tumors, but they're benign tumors, so nobody's dying. And so I moved back to Beverly Hills about five and a half years ago, opened my practice, and I thought to myself, you know what, I've got my dream job. I'm going to do some cosmetic, I'm going to do some cancer reconstruction, or I'm going to do some pediatric. Within six months, I had a practice that was as busy as one of the busiest surgeons in Beverly Hills who's practicing like 30 years. And <laughs> it was all cosmetic. So since then, I've been getting better and better at just doing kind of facial cosmetics. And now I'm every day doing lip lifts, facelifts, rhinoplasties, and eyelid surgery, and trying to do the most advanced form of all of them. So I won't stop unless you have coronavirus and then I stop. So that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's when I stopped. <laughs> what do you attribute that massive growth to? I think I grew faster than anybody that I've seen before. I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know it was even a possibility. I think a lot of it has to do with uh, just being in Beverly Hills. And Beverly Hills, uh, it's a travel destination for plastic surgery. You're also in a very small community. So there's a lot of patients who are here available. The other thing that I would say is that... I had a little bit different experience and talent than the other surgeons in Beverly Hills. So when I came back, I was doing much more substantial facelifts. That's what kind of got my name on the map over here. And I developed a lip lift technique that made lip lifts popular again. So it had nobody had heard of them for like 25 years because it was taught not to do them. And then I developed a new technique and all of a sudden worldwide people are talking about it again. So those things helped surgically. But the real thing that I think got me busy fast was my fillers and Botox. I, I was doing... 30 to 50 patients a day doing injectables. I was working till 9 p.m. So my name got around fast. And you don't have to be incredible. You just got to be, you know, above average, (laughs) better than everybody else. You've seen people in LA, they look kind of fake. So when you're able to make a big change on somebody without it being noticeable, you get popular pretty quickly. Yes, that's very true. And there's also um, the wrong people can get popular very quickly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's, That's the history of plastic surgery, though, is that historically, the the ones who become most popular, uh, there's the good ones. And then there's the ones who are not that good. They're average. So they rely on social skills and marketing to become popular. 
And that's all it takes. I mean, it's just like anything else. You just market, market, market. So uh, now, fortunately, we have social media and some people do become more popular because of social media. But the thing it's done is that it puts everybody's results on display now. And you can tell. So you see the doctors who actually display their before and afters versus the doctors who are displaying the process, meaning they're actually doing the procedure and they just show you doing the procedure. Who cares about that? Anybody can do a procedure. Show me the result. So the patients who are going through, they'll go through and you know, someone will say like, oh my God, plasma pen's the most amazing thing ever and everybody loves it and all these famous people are doing it. Well, who cares? Show me the result. And patients see that now. They're like, I've been looking for weeks. I can't find a single good result on this stuff. They just keep saying it's good. I'm like, well, that's, that's, your, uh, <laughs> that's your test right there. It tells you. And there have been a lot of people that have been really badly burned from that, right? Yeah, yeah. Pl- plasma pen is one of the things that uh, has never been shown to be useful. It's based on a theory. It's uh, somebody looks back and they said, okay, well, we used to have CO2 laser. CO2 laser used to burn the whole face. And then they found out that doing fractionated CO2 laser in only certain columns and leaving areas undamaged, they were able to heal better without having the pigmentary problems and heal a lot faster. So they took this in their minds and they extrapolated it somehow to damaging somebody with electricity, saying, okay, we're going to fulgurate, meaning we get cautery and we actually burn the skin in a fractionated columns, and that's going to cause the same kind of damage without risk. And it's not true. No intelligent doctor would think that. But that's what people do. They kind of they have this imagination. Same with microneedling. They think microneedling fractionation has something uh, beneficial about it that is similar to CO2 laser, where it's completely, completely different. Doesn't mean it's not beneficial. It's just completely different than the way people envision it in their imagination. They have this like, you know, you have very creative doctors and then you have very practical, smart, intelligent, grounded doctors. You you don't (laughs) want to go to the creative ones. The creative ones, they have great ideas and it sounds fantastic and they can rationalize it or else they wouldn't do it, but it's not grounded or tied into reality, not into Mm -hmm. your real results or anything like that. So that's unfortunately too common. Well, I would argue that you're a creative doctor or maybe you're more innovative. So you've kind of changed, you you have your own technique, like you were talking about for the lip lift. You also have the aura lift. Could you talk about why those are different from more traditional techniques? Yeah. So it's actually very similar. The the aura lift and the lip lift are very similar techniques. The way the aura lift works, if you look at historically, again, with facelifting, facelifting used to be called rhytidectomy. That means that you're getting rid of wrinkles. And uh, the way that would work is they would just lift up the skin, pull the skin back, and they'd get rid of some wrinkles. The problem was they'd get a lot of scarring with it because there's so much tension on it. So the doctors came and they said, okay, you know what? Let me pull this deeper layer that we have called the SMAS, the Superficial Musculoaponeurotic System, SMAS. They grab it with some stitches, pull it back. Now they take some of the tension off the skin, which makes sense. But when you look really at the logic of it, instead of just pulling something to take off the tension off something else, why don't you just go release the tension? (laughs) Why don't you just go dissociate these layers or detach them from each other instead of just pulling on them, roll them over and put them back down with no tension. So that's called a deep plane lift. Deep plane facelift means instead of just dissecting skin, because nobody ages just in their skin. You age in the skin, the fat, the muscle, everything droops. You go, you release under the fat, the skin, and the muscle all together that have all drooped, release them from their attachment points or their tethering points, and then bring them back up into a superior position where they used to be. So you kind of lift it back up. The only way a lift works on a human being is if you release the tension. If you don't release the tension, you lift something. We're not made of wooden nails. It's not going to stay there. It's going to start stretching, and we call it cheese wiring or chicken wiring, depending on what they call it. And Uh, It stretches back down and falls, and in its wake, it leaves a scar because it's stretched away from the incision. So deep plane goes and actually releases everything, repositions it. 
So if you look at the most advanced deep plane techniques, which is the, the way that I do it is actually the maximum you can do on a deep plane, you get the most natural techniques, the biggest lifts, the biggest improvement in mid-face volume, the biggest improvements in contouring of the cheek, meaning restoring it to how it was, and the biggest improvements in jawline, neck, and upper chest. Your upper chest improves too. So this is doing a real extended deep plane lift, and your scarring is less, your healing time is better, and you're actually uh, traumatizing people less because you're dissecting in a natural plane. So the lip lift is the same idea. The reason the lip lift became popular is because six years ago, I came into practice, and I started doing it the way that I do the facelift, which means I go into deep plane, release between the muscle layer and the smas layer, go down, bring everything up. Now you're able to do it on any skin type, any age, whereas before you could only do it on a 70-year-old white woman. And that's what everybody was taught. The problem came that it got popular because people saw that I was doing it like this. And around the country, there used to be doctors doing it. So Dr. Hayworth was doing it. Dr. Spiegel was doing it. There was a Dr. Rodriguez who was doing it. These guys were all doing it for years and they were good at it, but not to the point where they were comfortable doing it all the time on young people or did they have the population because it wasn't popular in general amongst young people. Once I started doing it, in the deep plane technique or the modified upper lip lift technique, people noticed it became more widespread and everybody was asking for it. So they would go to all these doctors and say, can you do it for me? Most doctors would say no, because they were taught before not to do it on somebody younger, which is true. You don't use the older technique on somebody younger. Some of the doctors would actually go learn the new technique and start doing it. Some of the doctors went back and started doing it without changing the technique and our revision rates went sky high the next two years. So in 2015-16, the revision rate of lip lifts increased dramatically because there were so many doctors doing it because they thought all of a sudden it's okay to do it just because it's popular again. But they didn't realize they had to change the technique. Hey. Yeah. So who are the youngest candidates or not who, but what's the youngest age that you've performed some of these um, surgeries on? So the extreme, meaning like maybe one patient was like 16. Okay, and, and that's they just for had, a lip lift? Yeah, they had a congenitally just long upper lip. It was so long, but that's rare. Most mm -hmm. uh, younger patients actually don't display that until later or don't look at it till later. So most patients I say are kind of in the younger realm. They, they start maybe like 22, 23, something like that. And then you have, but you have different reasons for doing it in each age group. So right now, the main reason for doing it is senile upper lip, meaning an older upper lip. That's all senile means is aged. Okay. So you have a senile upper lip. Somebody comes in and they're 60 years old. It's lost volume over time. The layers have lost volume, meaning the smas, the dermis, everything. And it droops over time because the muscle function also changes. That person is the main one that the lip lift was made for. We go, we shorten the height of the upper lip from an incision under the nose, release everything, lift it back up. Now all of a sudden you can see teeth again. You see a shorter distance, more accent on the lip, and better volumization, which gives somebody more youth and sensuality. Because when you look at somebody and you're communicating with them, you're not looking at the nose or the chin or anything else. You're looking at the eyes and the mouth. You're looking at the two bright areas that communicate with you. The eyes are white. They communicate with you. The mouth has white in it. It's the teeth, and it communicates with you. So you're seeing those things. And if somebody is dark in those areas, they look tired or they look old. That's kind of uh, the, the easiest way to look at it. There's a lot more that goes into it. The younger patients are getting it because they were either overfilled or they congenitally, meaning from childhood, they've always had a long upper lip, or they just want a sexier upper lip. And that's where you have to really distinguish uh, who the better candidates are saying, you know what, this is not for you. Or yeah, you know what, I can do a conservative one and do it better on you. Or I can do it and you will have to do less filler in the future 
because this filler is making you look fake. And unfortunately, that's something that we do have to consider as surgeons now is doing something to get patients not to do something. So we have to do a surgery to get them to stop overfilling their lips, which expands their lips over time. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of uses for it now. And because you can do it so safely, I have no reason not to do it on somebody other than the healing time. They have to look at the healing time and know how long it takes to go through this whole process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the long run, it can actually be more cost efficient in that like it saves a lot of money on filler that's just going to maybe pull the lip down rather than lift it up, which is yeah. the desired yeah. outcome. Yeah. And there's a role for filler, but the lip lift does a completely different thing for the whole entire lip. So even for people who want to get filler, they can after a lip lift. It actually, the lip lift makes the filler, the lip more receptive to filler. You can fill it more easily without making it look fake. Interesting. I feel like a lot of people, (laughs) at least people who like come and comment on my pictures on social media, whenever I talk about this stuff, are like, you could have just saved yourself all of that and gotten filler, especially people comment that about my brow lift. I'm like, Mm -hmm. when, where did people get the memo that like filler does the same thing? Yeah. And it just, it it doesn't. Yeah. Filler does the opposite. Uh, It actually droops the lip down. And it doesn't mean don't do it. It's just that realize that that's what filler does. Filler cannot achieve what surgery can achieve. And the way we decide is we always look and say filler and skin tightening and these things, they're non-invasive. If you can get away naturally, nicely, and adequately with doing the non-invasive stuff, do non-invasive. Because anytime you do surgery, you're exposing yourself to a little bit of healing time and risk and all this stuff. So uh, you try to get away with the other stuff, but certainly never think that the two are going to achieve the same thing. They don't. And certainly fillers don't lift the lip. And the big fallacy that I see is a lot of doctors have this imagination and they think that fillers can lift. All they can do is expand. They don't lift anything. It's not some kind of like, you know, again, nail that you're putting in and keeping something up. So they end up putting filler all above the vermilion in between that that area between the nose and the the pink lip. And they put filler there thinking it's going to lift when all it's doing is pushing the lip away from the teeth. It looks weird. (laughs) I'm just thinking back to my, like, before, before we did anything, the, that before picture, oh, yeah. I had like the, the Simpsons lip. It was like, so, because I had had that experience where I had gone over and over and over again, and we're trying to lift all these different areas, not in the lip. It was just so heavy. It was not a good look. Yeah. And the, the lip becomes heavier, bulkier, the face becomes heavier and bulkier. People always think it's volume. It's not volume that makes the face look nice. It's contours. It's being delicate. It's having accent. It's it's those things. You know, volume is a one out of a thousand things that you have to have. Yeah. And that's like really what it came down to when I had my procedures with you. Like if I look at before pictures, I looked, my face just looked heavier. And I actually did have a lot of filler at the time because I was trying to achieve that lift in different areas like my cheeks and my brows and my lip and all of that. And so what we did was we kind of just refined everything and lifted it. And it's so subtle. Like I don't look like I've had work done, but it also made such a massive difference. Uh, you just so, look, you look like brighter and shinier. <laughs> That's all. Aw, thanks. So let's talk about the eyes because mm-hmm. the eyes are very um, trendy right now, right? Everybody wants to have the fox yeah. eyes yeah. <laughs> or like the Spock eyes. I think that's what it really looks like. <laughs> so I had to work on you a little bit about doing the brow lift and the bluff. So <laughs> can you can you talk about kind of the trend and can you talk about your aesthetic and yeah. who's a good candidate? 
Yeah. So, so most, uh, most people don't know how to look at the brow, um, and doctors included. You have to look at the brow as there's the bone of the brow, there's the skin of the brow, and there's the hair of the brow. People don't look at all those things. They think eyebrows are just the hair. Uh, so the skin is actually very different than the eyelid skin and the forehead skin. It's its, its own kind of fatty skin that it has. And it has to be in the right position. So people can't just go like wax their eyebrows and draw it on higher. That looks stupid. You've just put brow hair on your forehead. Uh, similarly, you can't go do surgery on somebody who already has uh, an appropriate brow position because then you hollow them out. Anytime you raise the brow, the eyes, uh, the upper eyelids can become more hollow. So the way I look at it is I look at the eyebrow position, the volume. I look at the upper eyelid position and the volume and the eyelid shape and everything. And if I think I can get away with just doing a little bit of Botox to lift the lateral brow, that's what I do. Otherwise, if I want to lift the brow, I do an endoscopic brow lift. An endoscopic brow lift is the most natural type to do if you do it properly because you go from small incisions in the hairline, you dissect, meaning you release the tension in the brow just like you would for the face. And the more you release, the easier it is to lift, meaning it'll last longer, be more natural because you don't have to pull it in a weird direction. It goes whatever direction you released uh, or whatever direction it aged in. So the brow lift itself is a quick, easy thing to do. And as long as it's not going to make someone's eyelids look too tall or too open or too hollow, then you want to do it. You never want to skeletonize somebody. So for you, I said no to you for like three years. <laughs> and then I think <laughs> at some point I looked at it and I said, you know what? Now you're getting to the point where <laughs> I can go release it. I'll do a conservative amount on you. It doesn't mean I'm going to do a mini, you know, stupid one. I'm going to really go release everything because you don't want to leave tethering points. And reset it, get you kind of higher where you were maybe eight, 10 years ago, and then you're going to maintain with Botox. And we looked at the upper lid and the upper lid just started to get some kind of skin redundancy. Upper eyelids are super low risk surgeries. So you just go remove a little skin and try never to remove fat from there because you need that fat. It's got a, that's what makes your eyes look soft versus someone who's skeletonized and old and hollow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, everybody's coming in asking for brow lift and fox eyes and almond eye procedure. Why? We have a couple of people. We have the Hadids, we have Kendall Jenner, we have these people who everybody looks up to and they want to look like them. And they keep showing me pictures of them. Uh, Five years ago, the pictures they were showing were different than the ones from now. Okay. So everybody wants to look like that. Five years ago, they were showing it to me and I said, well, that's Kendall's natural brow position. And she just kind of wears a ponytail and you know, that's it. That's her brow. She has a very long, high brow. When they showed me the Hadids, I said, well, this one's actually pulling it tight in a ponytail and waxing off the side of the, the hair and then just drawing it in higher. If you see her brow skin is still where it used to be. Now it's different. Now I think uh, <laughs> there's a couple of procedures that have been done, meaning a brow lift. And that's it though. They haven't done crazy, you know, almond eye surgery or anything like that. So they did like an endoscopic mm-hmm. brow lift, it looks like. The stuff that I want to scare people out of and will put people in jail for like the doctors who do it is the thread lifts around the eyes or these fox eye procedures. The uh, thread lifts around the eye make no logical sense. And if you're somebody who's going to do a surgery that makes no logical sense, you're not a smart person (laughs) and you really shouldn't be doing surgery and you shouldn't be going to that doctor because it's two not intelligent people doing the same thing. You both agree to something that has zero chance of benefit. And if something has zero chance of benefit in medicine, you've violated the Hippocratic Oath. The Hippocratic Oath, first thing we go through in medical school is to say, we shall do no harm. If you do something that has no chance of benefit, all you're doing is introducing risk to somebody. And that could be putting a needle in them. It could be a skin treatment. It could be anything. Threads 
people justify saying, well, they're temporary. I could put in a thread and it's temporary. Even if it's not good, uh, it's going to go away. That's not true. It sits there for six months forming scar. So your scar is permanent. <laughs> so it, even though the thread went away, that doesn't. Now they say, well, I don't care. I want to try. There's no trying because nothing's going to happen. It's impossible to get an improvement with a thread uh, doing those. And you see the, the, the different Instagram accounts that are displaying it. And they're clearly, you know, I hate to be insulting in medicine, but it's gotten to that point where people are doing things that are so offensive. I can't help but just say they're incompetent. You cannot mm -hmm. do those kind of procedures. And there should be a regulation or a commission. And if I were on it, I would take away their license until they decided not to do stupid things anymore. That's how, how much I think people become too cavalier about the procedures they're doing, worrying more about popularity or than, you know, and money rather than helping their patients. And it's always been an issue in plastic surgery, but never gotten out of control like it is now with these kind of things where practitioners are just doing things that have no health benefit. So... The other one is doing canthopexies, which is that almond eye procedure. Mm -hmm. And uh, this happens more in Iran, fortunately, not here. So the, <laughs> there, there aren't many doctors here who are dumb enough to do that. But they go and they detach the corner of the eye and they reattach it in a higher position. Anytime you detach the corner of the eye, that natural attachment that you have, you can't reform it. It never reforms. So you're going and taking something that is as dense as cement and you're replacing it with something that is as dense as chewing gum. And eventually, over the course of the next year, this eye that you elongated will go back to its normal state, and then it will become shorter than it was. So all these people getting the almond eye procedures are going to look like they have short, beady eyes in about two years. Ugh. Yeah, and this have isn't my opinion. This is fact. Have you seen anybody who's had it done? Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's horrendous. And they went to Iran <laughs> to do it. The Iran, Turkey, Iran... It, has great plastic surgeons, but it's also got a lot of bad ones, just like Korea. Korea is land of ingenuity and faking photos and has amazing surgeons, but has also very creative digital graphic designers who like to alter photos and do crazy things. And there's different patterns in different countries that you'll see. Like France is the more creative of the non-invasive. So they really push the envelope with trying to do threads and uh, fillers and that kind of stuff. Germany is very conservative. They don't like to do much at all. Sweden is like, they want to try everything out, but they don't have the training in it. So everybody looks ducky, but they're not harming anybody. <laughs> you know, so every country has a pattern. I think the issue with threads, at least here, is that a lot of these places who do it use pictures of like Bella Hadid and Kendall Jenner and the people who have that look that everybody wants right now. Mm -hmm. And they'll use their picture and that's all it takes. Like for somebody who has no idea what any of this really is, if they come across that and they see a picture of Bella Hadid and then they see the next picture of somebody who got threads. Doing the procedure. Yeah. So that's very popular and yeah. you're absolutely 100% correct. And that's what's happening is the doctor will not say they did the procedure. They'll say something vague, like we're doing Bella eyes. We're right. doing Hadid eyes. We're doing you know, Fox eyes. We're doing this. And you see their eyes. And then it looks like a photo of them that you zoomed in on just like you would for a patient. And then you go on to the next photo and it's them doing the procedure. And you're like, oh shit, this guy did Bella Hadid's brow threads. <laughs> so I know, it's crazy. I see the comments on some of these pictures and all these, and I'm assuming they're younger girls and everyone's saying they're saving up and this is what Bella did. And it's like, oh, uh, I, 
I just want to like interject myself, but yeah. then I'm like, no, step it's, away from the phone. <laughs> yeah, it's not what Bella did. <laughs> it right. is not what Bella did. <laughs> Um, and, and Bella, I think in general, this, you know, does kind of small things here and there. The, the only mistake I'd say she's made was removing that buckle fat too much. Uh, but otherwise she's got beautiful structure overall and everything she does is kind of minor. Mm-hmm. She, she does tend to look a little more lifted every year, Yeah, but I mean, you can't argue she's gorgeous, mm-hmm. but it's like, in my opinion, my untrained eye, it's kind of bordering on that, like, eh. This something's something's kind of starting to way. look done. Or yeah, and she's also young right now, and she looks right like ten years older. Look? Yeah, yeah, it's gonna. Age. Yes. And you have to worry about longevity. And uh, it is the doctor's place to remind somebody of longevity, not to just jump in and say, "Okay, yeah, you want to do it, so you look good for the next two years, which is the prime of your life between twenty and twenty-two. Sure, go mm-hmm. ahead, and then you're gonna look older the rest of your life and never be able to reverse it. And you're gonna chase that for the next forty years." I think when you're that age, though, you just cannot see beyond like, the absolute present moment and you just want instant gratification. Yeah. Yeah. So I have ways of scaring people sometimes <laughs> or I have ways of trying to do follow-ups with them so they're not doing the dumb thing. But sometimes they do. And I have compromised a few times on like, let's say someone wants buckle fat removal. And I know if I don't do it on this person, they're going to go do it and they're going to be damaged permanently. So what I do is I say, you know what? Let me do this. Let me take out a quarter of the buckle fat. It'll get you to where you want to be. You'll see. And I'll do a skin tightening procedure on you at the same time, which is actually improving these areas. Now you're not going to look older here in five years and look like you're sad and have RBF, resting bitch face. And (laughs) you do that, you save them. They're in your hands. Now I've kept them from doing something that's going to damage them. And never in the past would I have had to think about those things. You know, in in the past I was an idealist. And I'm like, I'm only going to do what's good for the person. Now I'm like, let me figure out what I can do that's good for them that I wouldn't necessarily want to do, but I will do to keep them from damaging themselves. And it's a weird position to be in. Yeah. I would imagine you don't really learn that, that finesse in med school. No, you only learn it like (laughs) once you start practicing and, um, you know, you start staring at people's faces all the time. (laughs) Okay. So I want to segue into listener questions because we had a ton and this is kind of on um, the subject of threads. So somebody asked about non-surgical rhinoplasty and threads for the nose. Mm-hmm. Um, that really scares me. Yeah. So, <laughs> I would love to hear your opinion on this. Yeah. So, so non-surgical rhinoplasty is 99% uh, fillers. There's the 1%, less than 1%, and we'll just call them uh, idiots who do <laughs> threads, you know, just for the sake of like thinking of a name. So, uh, Fillers are safe to do in the nose when performed by an experienced injector or surgeon. Uh, Fillers in the nose, if you read about it online, you're going to see there's a lot of fear about blinding people, a lot of fear about killing the skin. And just because you see doctors doing it doesn't mean that risk doesn't exist. It does exist. Um, And it's very real. And I do a lot of injectables in the nose. And I think for a while until recently, it was uh, me and Dr. Rifkin were probably the two most popular in LA or you know, doing the most for, for probably the past five years. And I have no problem with doing it as long as you do it on the right person. So fillers, if you're going to do it on the nose, you can only do it on somebody who needs a little bit of augmentation, meaning they have like a bump from the side and a deep radix or a deep root of the nose up at the top. And you just fill in that top of the bridge to make the bump look less apparent. Or you put a little bit in the tip to bring it forward, or you put a little bit kind of to make it look a little straighter. You cannot, should not make big changes with it because 
filler, although it might look good that day, two years later is going to make your nose look fat sometimes and it'll start drying in water. So there's a limitation to the amount you can do. And a lot of doctors don't think about that. They think, oh, let me see how far I can get the nose to stretch <laughs> by doing fillers. And they go like, add all this volume in there and they make huge changes on the nose. And they're like, oh my God, I'm an artist. I'm a Picasso. Look what I did. But no, you, this is a dynamic human. It's like there's things that are going to happen over the next year or two. It's not going to stay like that. It's going to start getting droopy, thick, and fat-looking skin. And they get these heavy brows because it's now making their brows heavy. So you have to be very delicate with the amount that you do with filler. You have to be very careful on revision. So somebody who's already had surgery is at extreme risk um, because they have tethered areas that can necrose or die off very quickly. And then you have the threads. So threads are... Again, very few reasons to think about doing them in the nose. One of the reasons to do threads in the nose is there are threads that they make that are made for breathing. And you can put it in and it improves the nasal sidewall resistance to breathing, meaning like a negative pressure for, for maybe a year or so. And they're pretty delicate, small things, and it doesn't really cause any problems from what I've seen or heard. Then there's people who try to change the nose with threads. And that's stupid. That is like... And, and this is my job isn't to be uh, politically correct. It's to be correct. You know, I'm a doctor. I don't need to say things to be nice. It, this is correct. Uh, it is stupid to put threads in the nose to try to lift it, to try to change the contour of the tip, to do anything like that, because it's illogical. When you go put a thread in the nose, you're causing scar formation. You're trying to move the tip up to an area where no dead space exists, meaning it's going to fall back down to where it was. So what's the point of doing it if it's going to last six months and then leave a scar in there? And you have a foreign material in there that can irritate the skin. And when it irritates the skin on the nose, uh, at the bridge of the nose, that nose skin can stay irritated forever once it happens and you have to start lasering and all this stuff. So don't do threads in the nose. There's no reason to do threads in the nose unless a breathing doctor tells you, I can get you a little bit of an improvement with this and you agree on the risks. The fillers... You can do it, but you better do it with a really experienced person or don't do it at all. And if you're going to do a rhinoplasty, a nose job, then don't even waste your time with doing the filler. It's for somebody who needs the tiniest kind of minor change and never wants to get surgery or not for another like 10 years. And then I think you can do filler. And I do tons of filler, but I still kind of explain to people how I do it, why I do it like that. And I'm always fixing dead skin from other doctors. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to say this about threads because I've had them. I talk about it a little bit. Um, I came to see you after, actually, and <laughs> I was like, I did a thing. And you're like, yeah, and it doesn't do anything. <laughs> and um, and it doesn't. Like, I was swollen for a couple weeks, and I thought that, and of course, I liked the swelling. And then once that went away, there was really no discernible difference. And that was in my cheeks where I would imagine there's so much more laxity than there is in the cartilage of a nose. I just don't understand correct. how that would even, how that's even physically possible. Right. Yeah. So you're correct. So the, the cheek is the one place where there is more laxity and you could try to use a thread. The issue is that you're never going to get a big improvement from a thread without negatively altering somebody. So the threads that people use in the face, again, they're PDO, polydiaxinone threads. They're dissolvable threads. It's a suture. And they put it into the face and it doesn't lift uh, necessarily because a lift, in my mind, goes in one direction. So you grab something low and you take it high. Uh, this usually pulls in both directions, meaning towards the middle. So if a thread goes from the upper cheek to the lower cheek, it's going to pull them both to the middle of the cheek. So it just compresses the area. The improvement people see definitively for the first couple of weeks is swelling. You get some swelling from this stuff, from the numbing medicine and the thread itself, and it looks kind of nice. 
some people do get an improvement for the next six months to a year and a half. Probably half the people have to have something corrected, though, meaning a dimple or something like that. So I don't love doing threads. I have nothing against it when doctors do it in the face. I just advise like my own family. I'm like, listen, I'm like, don't do it. <laughs> like I have my own reason. I don't want to say anything negative about it because there are these doctors that I respect who do it and they're, they're good at it, but just don't do it. Because I'd rather do skin tightening on you, like profound. And then a month later, just add a little filler and see how it goes. And if that's adequate, great. If not, then, you know, wait a couple of years and do a lift. The threads, I, I don't like the way they make the face feel afterwards. They usually add a little bit of uh, weird turgor in the face. It makes the skin a little more rigid on some people. Some people it goes in, does nothing, and it's fantastic, and it goes away. But I, I, don't, I don't know who those people are. So uh, if you can't identify who it's going to cause problems on, I don't like doing it. But still, if a doctor says they do it, I don't talk shit about it. I have no problem with it. There's certain doctors who are very good at it and get good results. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk about Profound because I got a lot of questions about it. And mm. I got a lot of people asking like, what are some procedures that they can do for kind of early formation of some jowling and some wrinkles and sagging, but they're not ready for surgery yet. So yeah. um, we've done it twice. Mm-hmm. I love it. I think I'm on their website. <laughs> yeah. 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 So Profound is a, it's a great device. And I'm as far as familiarity goes with uh, skin tightening devices, I'm in the top echelon, I'd say, of people who knows what they're talking about because I am a surgeon. I do a lot of facelifts and I do facelifts after these skin tightening procedures are done. And I do a lot of skin tightening and laser and all that. I I'm practically was practicing like a dermatologist for a couple of years. So um, I see a lot as to what they actually do. So I don't have the imagination side of me that needs to give answers to people. I have been in there. I've seen what all these do afterwards, and I see the skin quality improvements as well as the detriment. So the reason I promote Profound for this company who asks me to sometimes, they ask me to give lectures, is because I love the device and because it is the only device, and this is, again, it's a fact, it is the only device that can get a substantial skin improvement in the skin consistently, not on one person, but on every single person you do it on, as long as you do it properly. And you will get tightening of the skin without causing detriment, without causing too much fat loss, without causing too much stickiness or fibrosis of the skin underneath. All the other devices, to get it to do what Profound does, you have to either repeat them or put them at a high energy level, which ends up damaging the fat underneath the skin or the skin itself. And you don't see that for about six months to a year. The best example of all this is the classic Althera, which has been used for years and years and years. It is, is an old device. It's always been around. 10 years ago, we were using Althera and we, we saw, you know what, 10% of people are getting like improvements. But what I noticed was that a lot of these patients were looking older afterwards once they were getting the higher treatment setting. So you come back a year later and they look aged because you deflated the face without shrinking or thickening or tightening the skin. So that's kind of the horror story that you would read about online. Uh, profound, I love it because it doesn't do that unless you misuse it. So somebody who goes and does 800 passes in the face, yeah, you damage them because you went... Uh, past the point of you know recovery, they can't recover from damaging too much. So you stimulate it with radio frequency, and you want it to recover quickly. So that's like doing 250 passes or something on somebody. And what it does is it makes the skin brighter about a month later because it starts to hydrate from improved hyaluronic acid content. And then about three months, four months, five months later, it starts to get tighter. The nasolabial folds, the jowls, the jawline, the neck, everything gets tighter over the course of the next year. And I tell them. Patients, it gets tighter to the tune of about 30%. So you see about 30% improvement in shadowing of the nasolabial folds, of all that stuff. And it'll keep doing that for about a year. 
and then it lasts. I mean, most people I've done, uh, I've done follow up for about four or five years. Yeah, five years now. And there's no step off. There's no drop off. It just everybody maintains and just ages with it. So I love doing it for before facelifts instead of facelift for acne for all these different things. And it is the most substantial of all of them by far. The second one is Morpheus, uh, which is a nice device too. But if you repeat it too many times in the face, you, you will get that fat loss. So why don't all the companies make their uh, devices like Profound if Profound definitively is getting the better result in the face? It's because Profound has the patent on injectable radio frequency. So the other companies have been trying to mimic it, but don't want to do the exact thing. So they still get sued and they still pay royalties to Profound from what I understand, but they can't mimic it exactly. So they, they make different types of bipolar, monopolar, multipolar radio frequencies. So nothing can mimic it. But there are good uses for Morpheus and Embrace. I really like those devices for, for what they're meant for. Okay. So let's move on to the under eye area because I, I got a lot of questions about that too. I think mm. a lot of the women who follow me are probably around my age where like maybe they're starting to notice a little bit of wrinkling or um, like loss of, I don't know, getting that sunken in look. What are your thoughts on under eye filler versus other procedures? Sure. So so the under eye, as it ages or starts to look more tired, you have four or five things that you look at really that's causing it. So one of them is the descent of the cheek. The cheek is falling down away from the eye and you start to get hollowing. And the hollowing becomes more prominent as the fat bags from the eye uh, aren't held in as much by their sac and they start to bulge out. So that's number one is the hollowing. The other thing that you see is that the skin quality changes over time. And as you get more medial towards the nose, you start to see that the skin gets thinner from lateral to medial and you see through it more. So you see more of that brown coloration. You also, and some people have something called an accordion effect where the skin gets lax, also kind of in that vector towards the nose. And as it does, like an accordion, when you push it together, you get more crepiness and more darkness. And the other thing is pigmentary change or vessels in the under eye that form. So when we're doing filler, the whole idea is that we're treating the hollowing part of it, the part that's kind of sunken in. And filler, what it is, is it's a gel material made of a type of sugar in our body called hyaluronic acid uh, in the world of Restylane and Juvederm and those things. And you put it in the under eye to volumize or take the place of fat. It's supposed to look kind of like fat. The downside of doing a filler in the under eye is that the under eye is a supremely sensitive area. It does not like to be touched or tampered with anywhere under the pupil. And it also has very sensitive lymphatic drainage pathways. So it has trouble draining. That's why people look puffy all the time in their under eyes. So... When we do it, we try to use the safest filler possible and place it as deep and high as possible to avoid having problems and really undercorrect. Never correct to full perfection unless it's easy. Uh, the reason for that is that a year later, it can still draw in water. So the type of filler that we use there is called Restylane or Bellotero. There is no other filler that should be used there. Volbella should not be used. Volur should not be used. Voluma should not be used. Juvederm should never be used in the under eye. Radius, oh my God. So uh, you only use Restylane and Bellotero and you do small amounts and hope you get away with it. The problem is if you try to fully correct on some people, they'll get this puffiness to their face and they lose the delicate nature of their face. And it's better to look delicate and a little tired than have no shadows on your face but look like a big balloon. So that's really the under eye filler. Now, if that's not going to correct somebody, then we look at surgery and surgery the idea of surgery has changed over time from just going in and removing the eye bags and cutting skin. That made people look operated. So when everybody says, I don't want to look operated in plastic, 
they're mainly talking about facelifts and lower eyelids. Lower eyelids is what makes people look operated around the eye. They look like they have a shortened beady eye and facelifts make people look stretched. So those are the two dead giveaways. So now instead of taking away the fat, we actually go in and we use the fat. We move it down called a fat repositioning and we get rid of that uh, cheek lid junction and we don't remove as much skin anymore because anytime you remove skin on the eyelid, you might shorten it the next five years. Interesting. I never even thought about that. And I am one of those people who had one of those other, who even knows what it was actually, injected under my eyes. And like two years later, now I have this little lump under there. And I was going to get it dissolved before mm -hmm. all of this happened. And then we went into lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm stuck with it. So now you but, get to do lymphatic massage every day. Yeah, it's not helping though. Nothing I do is helping. I'm sure it's all the eating too. And my lymphatic system is just sluggish right now. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> um, okay, let's see what else. I have like hundreds of questions here, which we're not going to have time to get to. But okay, well, kind of to that point, what is the best non-surgical facelift procedure to the cheeks? Uh, so the best non-surgical facelift for the cheeks, what I like to do, and I have no problems with this, is I do profound. And I see somebody about a month later and I just put filler, small amounts of filler. Uh, that's the safest, healthiest way to go about it. Uh, some people can do fat injections, which is fine, but you can't do the same thing with fat as filler. And also I tell people never think that fat is natural. They all think fat's natural. It's not natural to take fat from your ass and put it in your face. It's not natural. It's we're getting away with it. You know, we're, we're doing something where we're putting fat from your body to your body, but it's a different type of fat. Uh, so it's not natural, but uh, you can use fat, you can use filler. And I like to do skin tightening first instead. The um, other options, again, become threads. I don't love those. And cheek implants. Cheek implants don't really lift unless you're putting a huge implant in and it completely kind of stretches your face out. So my favorite is just doing profound followed by some fillers. And unfortunately, the other radio frequency devices cannot do what Profound does for the face. They can match it for the neck, not for the face. Mm -hmm. Okay. If women could only do one procedure that would most rejuvenate their look, what is it? And obviously this would vary depending on people's anatomy, but An is there something? Yeah. Well, I know this person. Mm -hmm. I think you do too. <laughs> She's around probably like early 30s. Um, yeah. So the biggest thing is always uh, when you're looking at shadows on the face, it tends to be facelift for most people. If you're looking at like all comers, it's a facelift. Facelift, you have endoscopic type lifts, which is kind of in the mid-face lift or ponytail lift, that kind of stuff. And you have regular external lifts. Um, otherwise, it's really person dependent. Some people, the only thing that makes them look tired is their under eyes. Some people, their lip is too long and it makes them look old, you know? So, uh, but if you're looking at all comers, facelift is the number one thing to do. And if they're too young for that, again, I do profound and then some filler. If they get to the point where they need a lift, then you got to see, okay, well, how much do they need a lift? Then they decide based on your outcomes, whether they want to go to you, meaning me doing an extended deep plane lift or somebody else who does like an endoscopic lift. And I have my own ideas as to why I do mine. They have theirs as to why they do theirs. Am I a good candidate for a facelift? <laughs> no, you're too good. But you'll start, get there. I'm going to work on you. <laughs> yeah. No, you'll get there one day. And when, <laughs> when we can justify doing it, we do it. Like when we look at, you know, so the way I look at it is I always say, look at the other stuff. If it's adequate and you look good enough like that, stick with the lesser stuff. And then once you see it's not cutting it, 
and there's a big gain to get from doing a, a substantial surgery, then we do the surgery. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think we're close to an hour, so we should probably wrap there. Um, oh, here I have one more. This is what probably most of the women who are listening to this want to know. Are you single? Uh, yeah, I'm very single <laughs> at this time. I, uh, I've been single for about a year now. So I, yeah, well, you, you, I think you know my story, so. Yeah, that's a whole other <laughs> podcast episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm single now. And the other morning I actually woke up and I thought to myself, huh, I guess I could get back into like, you know, looking. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm not like a looker. I never look for anybody. I kind of just uh, wait to see what pops up. And, it's, and you probably have tons of them coming into your office. Well, the people who come to my office, I never look at. Like I look oh. at them, like I've had the most gorgeous people come into my office but I, it's like, imagine your cousin comes in and mm-hmm. uh, obviously, you know, um, like when you see your cousin, you're like, okay, well, it doesn't matter how pretty they are, they're your cousin. <laughs> so mm-hmm. when I, uh, obviously not everybody thinks like that, uh, if you know my story, but the, um, <laughs> I see everybody like that. Coincidentally, the, the gorgeous people who come in do have gorgeous friends <laughs> that they've tried to uh-huh. introduce me to, uh, which is, which is nice. But like for the most part, for the past year, I've kind of just been in kind of like recovery and very traumatized and not wanting to, to get into anything. So I end up talking to somebody for like a day and then uh, don't talk to them anymore, which is sad because they're such like nice people I've met. Um, but then now I'm finally to the point where I'm like changing my life a little, relaxing a little bit more. So I feel like this is probably the longest time that you've had off since before you went to school, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The, the, like- the last time I had this was that time in between college and med school. Mm-hmm. And then since then, it's been kind of go, 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 16-hour work days. I started working more after residency. Nobody does that. <laughs> they work less. <laughs> so this is nice. Do you have any idea when you're going to be reopening? Yeah, we're, uh, I mean, no, <laughs> we don't know. But uh, most likely non-essential surgeries or elective surgeries are going to kind of go towards like June, mid-June, something like that. They're, they're first going to open up elective surgeries because the hospitals are not making any money because pe- pe- you know people don't realize the hospitals are like 10% emergencies, 5% emergencies. The rest is all kind of elective stuff that's going on and childbirth and a million other things. So the elective stuff that is more essential is probably going to go back first. And then the elective cosmetic is going to be uh, much slower, I think, to, to get back. But Right now, the people I operated on right before this whole crisis are the happiest ever because they had all this time to <laughs> recover. And I have tons of people calling to like, you know, I have so much downtime right now. Can we do it? And I say, no, sorry, it's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot even imagine. I know even I was thinking like, man, I should have done something. I should have found something to do. Before yeah, this. It's, the, it's, it's the, <laughs> the best. Perfect time to hide. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Maybe we'll have to do a part two, depending on how long you are stuck in the house. See if I can get you back because we have so many listener questions. Oh, I've got tons. You got questions. I'm like Radio Shack. I've got, I've got answers. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You're the best. Aw, you too. hope you enjoyed that episode. If you liked it, and if you like the show in general, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe. It goes a long way, and it's actually the best way to support the show. 
Also, if you want to see more about each episode, you can head over to the Blonde Files podcast on Instagram. I'm always posting about each episode there or over on my personal page at Ariel Laurie. 